The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Now, Exo-Ordinary Mind Facts. Did you know, your brain doesn't recharge if you use your phone on break? Using your phone on break during mentally challenging tasks, doesn't allow your brain to recharge effectively, and may result in poorer performance, according to new research. For the study, researchers assigned college undergraduates to solve challenging sets of word puzzles. Halfway through, some were allowed to take breaks using their cell phones. Others took breaks using paper or a computer while some took no break at all. The participants who took phone breaks experienced the highest levels of mental depletion, and were among the least capable of solving the puzzles afterwards. Their post-break efficiency and quickness was comparable to those with no break. Their number of word problems solved after the break was slightly better than those who took no break but worse than all other participants. Participants who took a break on their cell phone, took 19% longer to do the rest of the task, and solved 22% fewer problems than did those in the other break conditions combined. The act of reaching for your phone between tasks, or mid-task, is becoming more commonplace. Cell phones may have this effect because even just seeing your phone, activates thoughts of checking messages, connecting with people, access to ever-refilling information, and more, in ways that are different than how we use other screens like computers. And that was, Exo-Ordinary Mind Facts. Now, on to this week's Veritas interview. I'm Exo. Good night. Tonight's special guest has actually walked down the sacred corridors and hidden passageways where UFO studies took place when she worked in several crucial UFO investigatory agencies. Her exposure to these investigations allowed her to obtain real documents, not the usual informant stories and legends, including hidden studies showing that UFOs really exist, interviews with researchers taking photographs, obtaining documents, leaked information, informants, and much else. Her smoking gun revelations have already attracted much attention, including a possible new Roswell witness, accounts about possible memory metal and Elroy John Center, the Cordell Hall Report, and many others. Greetings from your host, Mel Fabregas. And if you're new to the Veritas family, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, just click on the subscribe button. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and much more. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Irina Scott, who received her PhD from the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine in Physiology, did postdoctoral research at Cornell University, and has had a professorship at St. Bonaventure University. Her MS was from the University of Nevada, her BS from Ohio State University in Astronomy and Biology, and she has done research and teaching at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and the University of Nevada. The Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, employed her in PhD level, GS-11. Research in satellite photography, including in its Air Order of Battle section, which involved aircraft identification with above-top-secret security clearances. She was employed in MS-level work as a physical scientist and cartographer in the DMA Aerospace Center using satellite photography. And she worked at the Battelle Memorial Institute. She has been sent for work-related purposes to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. Her website is Arena Scott. Dr. Irina Scott joins us directly from Central Ohio. Hello, Dr. Scott, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm fine, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. May I call you Irina? Yes. Thank you very much. Well, 
UFOs may be the greatest mystery of this millennium. They may be the most talked about, but least understood of any modern phenomena. This book, what was your purpose of the book? And by the way, let me read the title. It's a long one, but folks, listen. Sacred Corridors, Secrets Behind the Real Project Blue Book, Wright Patterson Air Force uh, AFT, Roswell Battelle Memorial Medal, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, and UFO Cover-Ups. It's probably one of the longest UFO titles I've ever seen. Well, actually, it just goes by um, Sacred Corridors, and the rest is a subtitle. Sure. <laughs> now, why was the reason for you writing this book? I had um, experience actually working in places where UFO investigation was taking place, and I had the opportunity to talk to people and find out their opinion and look at their papers and see documents and that sort of thing. And so I had sort of an inside view of the research. Aside from what I read from your bio, the academics and so on, give us uh -huh. a little bit of a background. What made you gravitate to this research? What made me gravitate is uh, I had experiences with UFOs. And so scientists are supposed to be debunkers. But if I'm honest, well, I actually had experiences, so I'm not a debunker. And I'm, as a scientist, I'm really curious about the whole subject and how it, um, just everything about it, because it's so uh, hard to explain or impossible to explain, maybe I should say. I have to ask you this, even though it's not part of this book, I believe you covered this in, in prior books, you're... Publisher Philip sent me another book today, which I started reading, but then I realized it was not the latest one. And it talks about your experience. Why don't you tell us of your experience so that we can have a better perspective? Okay. Um, my experience started long before I ever heard of UFOs. And this was something that happened with my sister when we were really young kids we had something in our bedroom, something flying around that we couldn't, we just didn't understand. Um, I woke up and there was this thing flying around the bedroom. I thought my sister was asleep, so I didn't discuss it with her, but it looked like a piece of hot metal and I'd never seen anything like it. And I think I was about six and she was about four. Um, and it, it, we'd seen lightning balls, I mean, lightning bugs and everything like that. But I had never seen anything like this. It looked like metal. It was on all the time. It didn't flash on and off. And it, after a while, I watched it, and it seemed to be controlled in a way. I mean, it would approach something, and then it turned before it got to it, which, you know, if you bat a ball and it goes toward a wall, it hits the wall. Well, this is different because it would – go toward the wall, and then it would turn. And it flew around the room in sort of a random fashion, but it got close to both of us. And I was wondering what it was, and thinking this isn't anything normal. It was dark, and it was also a clear night. And um, after a while, it flew up toward the ceiling, and it turned right before it ran into the ceiling and ran, went along the ceiling. And this was an attic room. It was an old farmhouse. And the two walls sloped up toward the ceiling. There was about three feet between them. Well, this thing flew along the ceiling, and there was a chandelier. It went right between the ceiling and the chandelier without feeling anything or bumping into anything. Then it began to circle the chandelier in just perfect circles. I think it probably went 20 or 30 circles. It seemed to speed up a little bit. Then after a while, it began to make a spiral downward under just a real geometric spiral downward under the chandelier. And at that time, we both just became absolutely terrified. I didn't know she was seeing it, and I don't know. She apparently thought, knew I was awake, but we both started shrieking and ran downstairs and fell downstairs. We were in such a hurry to get out. 
and to our parents who told us we were crazy and didn't believe us. But there were two of us. And so, and we hadn't been talking to each other. And so we both knew we were seeing something and it wasn't our imagination. But this turned out different from a lot of cases because I never found any explanation until many years later when I read works by Jenny Randalls, a UK ufologist. And she talked about young kids having sightings of UFOs like in their bedroom and small UFOs. And that we sort of fit that pattern. She said that often when that happens, that the person sees UFOs later in life. Well, we had that experience when we were young, and then we had another experience when we were older. And so far as I know, we're the only two people that have had the young experience and the older experience together with the same person. So it was kind of unique. I have to mention this because what you describe, I have a case that I've been following for the last 10 years, and I haven't uh -huh. been able to disclose or, or provide the the images, the photographs that I have in my possession. And a lot of this sounds like what you experienced. So I wish I was next to you so I could show you these images so you could tell me if they look similar to what you saw. But you said that you found, or you, we have a conclusion as to what you saw. I'm very curious based on what I've researched myself. What is your conclusion of what you saw? Those, uh, it looks like a piece of metal, orbs, blue, uh, could it be red and orange? This just looked like burning metal, like if you see real hot iron. Right. Pictures of when they're pouring molten iron or something. It looked that same color, and it just looked like metal. It wasn't very large, but it glowed, and there, it, the glow around it was a little bit larger than the actual thing I saw. And what did you learn from the researcher from the UK? She included us in her next book, I think, I forget its name, um, Star Children was its name, uh, and it apparently, UFOs can come in different sizes, and sometimes children see small UFOs and see larger UFOs when they're larger, and that sort of thing. So I thought it was just a small UFO after years and years and years, I had no idea what it could have been until I read her writings, which is many years after we'd seen it. But in terms of, obviously, was it a physical object? I thought it was, but it didn't, it didn't, it seemed to be guided. If it were a physical, you could tell if it bumped into something, if it was a right. physical object, but this didn't bump into anything. When it came to a wall or something, it would turn. It was like it was guided. Do you think that event had something to do with your research, the later, the latter research in life? Yes, because um, we had a real complicated sighting later. I gave a speech on it last month at the MUFON, the annual MUFON Symposium, about one of the the other sighting we had together, which was a very complicated one, and years later. And can and you describe so, yeah. that? Can you summarize that sighting? Yes. Um, <clears throat> this was kind of a complicated sighting. My sister and I were living uh, in along the East Coast. She was at Drew University taking postgraduate work, and I was working for the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C. And we decided to, the last thing on our minds were UFOs. We decided to take a vacation since we were both on the east side of the country, we decided to um, go out and see the New England states. And so I took some co-workers and drove from Washington, D.C. to Drew, which is um, basically in New York, very close to it, and picked her up. And we went on to, Bo we were going to Boston, but we got to Massachusetts and it was still daylight. So we drove up into New Hampshire for a while and then came back and then began to look for a place to stay in Boston. Everything was filled up. And so we decided to um, leave Boston, look along the outer belt. So we were leaving Boston and there was an airport south of Boston. We could see the airplanes 
coming in and landing. And um, they just look like regular airplanes. You could see their wing lights and the red and green lights and landing lights and things. Most of them seemed to be landing that we watched. And then there was this other light. And we couldn't figure out what it was. This one was just a solid, real whitish white color. It was blinking very slowly, not like a strobe light. And it was traveling south. And we began to discuss it. And my sister began to say, maybe this is a UFO. And I was in science, so I thought, well, that couldn't be a UFO. And so I told her it was a helicopter blinking its landing lights off and on. And I'd never seen anything like it, and I'd never seen a helicopter blinking its landing lights off and on either. But I was being a debunker, and debunkers don't worry about facts and things and ufology. And so I told her that. At the time, it was, in, it was 1968, and people didn't talk about UFOs, but we both admitted to each other that we'd seen UFOs also. And I also... It mentioned that thing we saw that I just mentioned um, in our bedroom. We hadn't figured out what that was at that time. And so we continued uh, driving along and seeing this thing in front and arguing. Well, I got off the outer belt and I was going south on the uh, Route 95, which is the main freeway up and down along the coast. And there was a woods on the west side of the road. And we saw, I saw this sphere. It was about basketball size. It was sort of transparent. And it had a light in the center. And it, the light seemed to be going through a spectrum, like of all the shades of blue and then all shades of red, and then all shades of blue again. And that was weird enough. We were also seeing this other thing. And... Um, then the inside of the car lit up in green, and I was totally confused. I couldn't figure out anything. It was like a few green Christmas tree lights were in the car, and I looked around all over the place looking for anything that was green because I couldn't figure out why the inside of the car was green. And so we continued, and it went off. The green went off for then after a while. And we were driving along and arguing again. And my sister started yelling at me to stop, 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 because she said the thing that we were, um, the big thing that we'd been watching was going to go over the freeway. And so I stopped and I pointed my hand out the window and I was going to say, see, dingbat, it's a helicopter. <laughs> what year uh, was this? It was 68. It was okay. July 13th, 1968. And I pointed my hand out the window, and way off, I saw a falling star. And then right where I saw that, this thing came over the trees, and I realized that my sister was right and I was wrong. It was totally soundless. It had seven big windows. And we had seen a lot of blimps with lighted sides. We had a lot of experience with that, and I've taken a lot of pictures of them, too and videos of them. So I'm real familiar with blimps with lighted sides. And this had seven big square windows. And we discussed it. Are these windows or panels? And we both thought they were windows. Also, it had a little red light on the on one end and a little green light on the other that were just small and they weren't blinking. Nothing like airplane lights. And the seven windows were blinking in a sequence like the first three would blink on and off twice then all seven would blink on and off and then the next, the last four would blink it off and off and my sister kept saying they're sending a signal right like morse code yeah i kept wondering what on earth she was talking about and i never did understand it but she thought for some reason that that was some kind of a signal that she was supposed to understand and so anyway it was going over, and I had a. I was taking a picture with a regular camera, but I also had a Polaroid camera in the car with high-speed film. And so this was just an amazing picture. I was working at the DIA in photo analysis, and so 
I was kind of aware of things and I thought it, it so I grabbed the, I found the um, camera in the dark and the film in the dark and I was putting the film in the camera, which takes a while with a Polaroid. And um, I thought this was just an opportunity like you couldn't believe because I was going to take a picture of the inside of a UFO, which so far as I knew, nobody had ever done. And I was just amazed at it. And just as I was about ready to take a picture, this truck driver drove over and parked in front of us and came up (coughs) and stood beside me. And he was a man and, you know, women are afraid of men at night and things. And so even though I was just dying to take his picture, I instead looked at him and he asked what we were doing. And this seemed really funny to me because (laughs) we're looking at this big thing. And so we pointed at it and we didn't say UFO or anything because he was a strange man. We didn't want to act weird. We just acted like it was an airplane. We were around an airport and everything. And he just rotated around, pointed his head in the opposite direction and said, I don't see anything. And then I was really nervous. And I was also missing this really good picture. He rotated back, looked at me and asked the same question again. What are you doing? And we pointed again. Well, he rotated back around, pointed his head in the exact opposite direction of where it was and said, I don't see anything. Then he rotated around, looked at me and pointed to his head like I was crazy, and he went back to his truck. Well, uh, you you know, I was intimidated by him. All of you could see it, but not him. Yeah. And, um, well, he he obviously knew where it was because he pointed his head in just the exact opposite direction. So it wasn't like he couldn't see it. It's like he looked in the wrong direction. You know, when you point at something— and somebody can't see it, they look in that direction. Right. Well, he just looked in exactly the opposite direction and said, I don't see it, which made no sense to me at all. Because it wasn't like he was looking for it. It was looking, it was like he knew where it was and was just acting weird. And so um, I had just missed this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful picture. And my sister at that time, in her reports that she filled out, she said that the object we were looking at while I was taking the trying to take the picture had suddenly just got someplace else and it was farther away. And I didn't notice that because I was telling the truck driver and trying to take the picture, but I still wanted to take a picture. And so anyway, after he left, it was farther away and I was afraid I'd get lens flares in my, if I took a picture by the freeway. And so there was a hill beside it with some trees around the bottom. And so I ran up the hill and the hill was bald and I got a picture of it and came back down. And then um, it began to circle the airport and it would make this really funny circle. It was like a um, very geometric. It would start the south and blink its lights off and then on and then off and then on and then off. Then it'd be north. It was just south instantly. It would go so fast you couldn't see it or even imagine it. And it just repeated that over and over and over. So I thought it was a little bit north of us then. We had been following it south. And I thought, um, you, you know, I was missing this wonderful picture. And we wanted to find out what on earth we were looking at. And so anyway, I, the, our car was pointed south. And so I was going to get on the freeway. And go south and turn around the intersection, come on back in, in case it went north. And so I got on the freeway. Well, the truck driver just immediately got in right behind me, rode my bumper, turned his bright lights on, shone him in my mirror, and I was blinded. And I tried to get rid of him. I tried to slow down, speed up, and switch lanes, and he just stayed right on my bumper. And I thought we were going to get killed, and I had no idea how to get rid of him. Who was that guy? Huh? Yeah, the crazy truck driver. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then what I decided to do was to um, drive as fast as I could, which I already was doing, and he kept right up with me. 
on the left-hand side and then suddenly swerve when I got to an intersection and swerve off the road. And this was real dangerous because if somebody's coming on the right side of the road faster, we'd have been smashed and squashed. But I did that, and we survived. And so I turned around and went back, and it was still circling the airport. When I got about even with it, it headed northwest. And so I drove on up uh, the Route 95, and I saw the sphere again, the transparent sphere, and the inside of the car lit up with the green again. And that thing was kind of close to us, but we were following the other thing. And so I followed it, and finally we wound up on this real bad road that was oh, just full of potholes and gravel and no place to turn around and houses that were a long ways away from each other and everything. And I couldn't go fast enough. It was just a little bit faster than my car could go and not tear it up. And so I had to turn around and go back. And we didn't find any place to stay, so I went all the way back to uh, Drew University. And then later I went back to Washington, D.C., and I had a poltergeist experience after that. So it was quite a day, a night and next day. <laughs> so that was a experience my sister and I had together. This truck driver part, I mean, that sounds so almost like a Stephen, uh, Stephen King added a part of his novel there. I mean, he, he, strange. But did you ever reconcile this second incident? And is there any connection between the first one and this one? Or were they just two isolated incidents? I don't know, because it. I was just going by what Jenny Reynolds said, and she said that Often that people, when they're young kids and have an experience, they'll have experiences later. Right. And we did. And there was a little bit of things that were kind of similar. I mean, for example, when we were kids, we saw that the thing circled the chandelier. And then we became terrified. And in the other one, when we were older, something circled the airport. And then we became terrified because the truck drivers were after us. And there were just a few little things like that that were similar between the two. So I don't know. And you did not get any sense of communication between the objects, both objects, and the two different incidents and you? Not, no. Um, my sister kept saying that she thought There, she was supposed to understand kind of, some kind of a signal when it was blinking those lights, but I didn't get that feeling. And so I, I don't know. Maybe she did, but I don't think I did. But we'd, I've seen other UFOs, so I think there was something going on. Did you have any family members who worked for the government before you did? Um, Parents, grandparents? Some of them worked for the government, but not in the military. Uh, I think my mother had worked for the um, federal government, but she was a secretary, or, and I think my, her sister did too. Very interesting stories. But for the record, you do not consider yourself a ufologist. You are a scientist who writes about this, but you're not a ufologist. Am I correct in that assumption? Well, that's, I've, I've always, I mean, my paying jobs throughout my life have been in science. And I started in ufology when I was older. But I've always been, all my work life has been in science. All my paid work life. Of course, I'm making a little bit on books now, but I'm just doing it because I'm trying to figure out what's going on with ufology. Uh, UFOs. Speaking of that, I wanted to ask you, I've been asking this question for the past few months because the scenery, in my opinion, has changed. I haven't been doing this as long as you have doing your part, but over 10 years, the media is bursting with UFO stories. Or they're not laughing about this anymore. What do you think changed? Why has the ridicule factor subsided? Well, I hope it doesn't come back. Uh, part of it was because of the New York Times article in 2017, which um, the New York Times is a serious newspaper, and it had a serious article about that 
the government was actually spending money to investigate UFOs. And it involved people like Harry Reid, who at that time was pretty important, the leader of the Senate. And um, uh, that the DIA was involved and they had – and then the rec- more recently they talked about the Nimitz and the um, ship and the jet pilots that saw the UFOs and even more recently – well, the History Channel covered it in the story – in the series called Unidentified and went into detail on that. And they interviewed the jet pilots who chased the UFO and the radar operators on the jet and everything else and did a real good study of what they did. And I think that's one reason why they're taking it seriously now. Yeah, whatever channel you see these days, in the past, you know, even five years ago, you would turn on the TV, you see an interview, and not even 10 seconds after the person starts talking, they put the X-Files music behind the scenes, they start laughing or they edit what the interview was all about. So a lot of good people were afraid of going to mainstream media to talk about this, but that seems to be changed. At the same time, many people think they may have seen a UFO, but they are told they did not because UFOs do not exist. Do you think that notion is changing? Yeah, I think... um One reason is due to the publicity, such as the um, New York Times article and the Nemitz incident, and the people such as Mellon and Reed, who are big people, who are taking it seriously, and the media is carrying it seriously. I think that has a lot to do with it. And... I think a lot of people have seen UFOs, so I think there's an interest in that, but they haven't said anything about it for most people don't because they get in trouble and people laugh at them. But it, it's more out in the open now so that people can talk about it. Now, I have to be very honest with you. When I hear the word smoking gun, I'm always a bit skeptical. And I hope you understand, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people, uh, although people of your caliber are not that common. And uh, this has absolutely no reflection on your great work. It's just that the field of ufology is also plagued with people who would say anything in order to be relevant. What are some of the smoking gun discoveries you refer to in the book? Well, I think one of the first ones was that um, I heard a at Roswell, I heard a tape recording, and they always say that... Um, there was no Roswell debris, that the whole thing was imagination or things. Well, there was a tape recording of a Roswell uh, radio reporter who was on air at the time. And he, while he was on air, he said, I just called Wright Patterson, and they're expecting the plane carrying the Roswell debris to arrive there soon. And so that's pretty hard evidence that <laughs> something was sent from Roswell to Wright Patterson because there's a tape recording of the radio announcer saying that. What do you think happened to that announcement? You remember July 7th, 1947, the Army Air Force has uh, announced they have, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Why uh-huh. the, the story, the, the, the sudden changes in the story, first it was a flying saucer, then it was a, a weather balloon, then it was crash test dummies. Why couldn't the government get its act together back then? Well, it seems strange to me. I mean, I'm not saying I know for sure on anything, but it, uh, that was the 509th Air Force unit at Roswell. And they were the ones that they were real important because they were the ones that dropped the atomic bombs and on Japan. And they were the only ones that were equipped to do that. So they had really high level people and intelligence officers and everything else. So it seems strange to me that a balloon would fool all these intelligence officers and top military brass. So I don't know, but. I just wondered. There's a lot to question about it. 
So let's say it's July 7th. I don't even even know if that's the actual crash date. Was that the crash date, July 7th, or was the date when it was reported? I don't know because um, what they found was the debris. Right. And so I don't know exactly when it crashed. There were some people that reported seeing it, but I don't know if there's a definite date. It was around July 7th or around July 4th or someplace around there. Yeah. I want to discuss Roswell later and uh, the metal, the alloys, and all that. But let me just ask you, how does your investigation differ from others? Well, uh, for one thing, I worked at Battelle Memorial Institute. And so I there was some evidence that Wright-Patterson sent material to Battelle. And Battelle did a what was then a top-secret study of UFOs for the Air Force. The only reason they found out any uh, they were doing it was because there were leakers. And so I was able to talk to a number of people that worked on that. They worked for Blue Book and worked for Battelle on the um, study and things. And so I had some inside information of feeling about what was going on and that sort of thing. Also, I'd been sent to Wright-Patterson. Air Force Base, which is very important in u- ufology because uh, it was uh, where Project Blue Book took place, and it was also thought to be where the Roswell debris was sent. And I've been on base, which most people haven't. I think there's very few ufologists that have been on base. And so I kind of looked around and tried to check this, the accounts that people had. Now, whether it's Project Blue Book, uh, SETI, you know, the WOW signal, or any other government undertaking, there's this sense of distrust, at least from what I can gather from our listeners. We simply don't believe the government, that whatever they'll tell us is the truth. And, and, And all the Blue Book findings or SETI signals, if they found something that resembles disclosure or an intelligence signal from outer space, I feel they won't tell us. And if they ever do... Perhaps there are other reasons that we can get into later. Your take on this apathy or distrust from the population towards what we're being told? Uh, My opinion is is that they're hiding information. And this was because when I was working for the DIA, this was in 1968, I was working for the DIA when this happened to me. Well, I didn't go around and say, hey, I saw a UFO because I'd probably lose my job real fast if I did. But I mentioned UFOs, and I expected everybody to laugh at me. What happened was is that my supervisors at the DIA said didn't laugh. They said they had reported a UFO on our top secret film. I mean, we were supposed we were working on satellite photography, and we were supposed to analyze. What, what we saw from the satellite, and I was in air order of battle, where we were over a particular air ground, we were supposed to identify anything flying or possibly flying or anything else. Well, my supervisors reported a UFO on the, on their, on the satellite photography, and they were supposed to be the top people in this area of the ground, and they were supposed to be the, you know, the professional top people. Well, their supervisors told them that it was spot on the film and they didn't see anything. And we were professional uh, photo interpreters. And this was on two different missions so that you could actually change it around city in stereo. So it was a real thing. But their supervisors told them this wasn't real, that it was a spot on the film. And it obviously wasn't. And so that always that from then on, I was suspicious of the government of what the government told, because that just didn't sound right at all. Now, by the way, you know exactly what I mean when I talk about disinformation, since you wrote a book titled UFOs Today, 70 Years of Lies, Disinformation and Government Cover-Up. Many of us have speculated about the reasons for the cover-up, but what is your own personal opinion about the cover-up, or or as Steve Bassett calls it, the truth embargo? I think it started because... Um, the UFO, the subject was 
in the military. And um, I think it started by putting, well, when they first investigated UFOs, I think it was their theory that these might be Russian missiles or something from another country. And so the subject wound up in the military. Well, the military was interested in finding out intelligence about everything. And if some other country had something with the performance of UFOs, well, obviously they would want to know that and know all about it. So they, it became secret because it was just in the military and they thought they were investigating initially something from Earth from other countries. And I think since then, they've always classified it because it's always sort of been in the military instead of in the scientific domain. I think if there was some way it had been in the scientific domain, there'd be a lot more openness about it. But the military has always covered and said there's no such thing. You know, anybody that sees it as crazy and, and all that. I don't think that applies as much now, but I think it's just something historic that's that's the way it started and that's the way it kept on going. I'm trying to find the exact name of the extraterrestrial contact law. Are you familiar with it? Extraterrestrial exposure law. Uh, it was enforced from 1969 to 1977. Are you familiar with it? I probably know it under some other name. Uh, what is it? It's a federal law that prohibits U.S. citizens from having contact with extraterrestrial beings. Whether it's a real law or not, some people say it is, I've seen it, and perhaps it's not enforced. But I can actually see if there's a being from another planet or, or solar system that comes along, maybe they have microbial life around them that we are not immune to. And uh, that might be a reason why we have to be quarantined. What's your take on that? Well, they certainly quarantined the astronauts. For example, right. when they came from the moon, they had to stay for a week in quarantine. Um, but, you know, if you're uh, just a normal person and you have an experience such as an abduction, well, there's nothing the government can do about it. But imagine if you're, if you're in the CDC and you have, you have access to all this information and you see a... Dr. Irina Scott driving to New England in the 1960s, and you're told that she was, let's just make believe here, you were abducted, and you talk about the beings and the craft and so on, and I'm the CDC. I will be very concerned about you spreading any unknown biological, you know, any disease to the population. Don't you think this would be an important aspect for the government to watch? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'm working with Philip Mantle, the publisher, and with Calvin Parker, who was part of the Pascagoula, Pascagoula abduction. Sure. We had him on. Yeah, and when, after after his abduction, he was very concerned. He was afraid he might be radioactive or have germs or anything else. Yeah, and he threw he, away his clothing. Yeah, but the government didn't do anything about it. Exactly. And that was very interesting. When I interviewed him, I, that's exactly the question they a I asked him. What did you do with the clothes? Oh, I just threw them away. And he poured uh, Clorox on himself. <laughs> exactly. And then he went to, um, I think it was Kessler Air Force Base or someplace to try to get, try to see if he was radioactive. Now, here's a hypoth hypothetical question. If you were part of an advanced extraterrestrial race who has been observing us for millennia. Would you share your technological advancements with us? Yes or no, and why? Well, it's like the prime directive on Star Trek. If they showed it, if they um, gave us their big advancements and it was something you'd kill people with, well, we'd probably <laughs> immediately have a war and, uh, you know, destroy the world or something. So I don't think we're ready for it myself. I say it more because, well, you know how we are. If we need a resource in order to survive, we don't think twice. It's just like the movie Avatar. We go there and take it. Yeah. So if, if you're a more advanced civilization who's watching over us, 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you my coordinates. And this is why a lot of abductees want to ask them, where did, where did they say they come from? Oh, they didn't say. Could that be a possibility as to why they don't say where they're from? Well, we're a long ways from being able to get from here to there. With our technology, though. Uh, I think we'd kill ourselves. I don't think we're <laughs> too much danger to the, um, any other life on other planets, um, you know, or other star systems. But we might be in the future. Well, but based on the technology that we have, you're right. We probably would kill ourselves before we get there. But obviously, they're coming not from this solar system or, you know, Proxima Centauri next door. They're probably coming from who knows where. Obviously, they have the technology to bend time and space. Would you agree as a scientist? Yeah, the, I don't know if it's technology or if they're just something that we aren't, that we don't understand. I mean, there's like dark matter and things like that that we don't understand. And they may be something just totally different than, you know, we're carbon units and all that. And they may be something a lot different right. from us. And perhaps they're silicon-based life forms. Who knows? Yeah, or maybe dark matter. If so, they wouldn't be constrained by a lot of things that we are. And um, also I've considered that maybe some of them might be images that are sent across space some way, such as maybe using the quantum theory and things where you can, uh, where information travel faster than the speed of light. And this is the part that I sometimes have a hard time understanding from SETI and the WIO signal. If, again, if we have a civilization that's trying to communicate with us and they're millions of years ahead of us, for us, how would we understand? I mean, go back a few hundred years ago, we will be communicating with smoke, smoke signals or something like a Morse code or something else. How would we be able to Understand, number one, if we can get the signal, and number two, the medium in which they send the communication, how is it compatible with our medium to receive it? Well, I think if you took, like, a cave person from 40,000 years ago and brought them up in today's world, they would understand everything. They wouldn't in their own culture, but they'd have the brains to, I think. And... So I don't think, um, I don't know if that's a good comparison. I think maybe comparing comparing us to Anibas, uh, trying to understand a television or something like right. that might be better. <laughs> well, I see what you're saying. I remember I interviewed a doctor who spend, spent some time in the Andes with a tribe that had never, ever left their area. They had never been to the city. So uh -huh. he took the elder, an elder to the city of Lima, Peru, and uh -huh. he could not believe it. He was walking the streets and he's looking at cars and he's saying, but, but, but why do they have to be in cars? They have legs. Why don't they walk? <laughs> and he goes to a building and says, why are they getting into that square when they can walk the stairs? And he gets into the elevator and he thought that he teleported when the elevator opened somewhere else. So they try to make sense of what they're seeing, I guess. But I think, I don't think human brains have changed that much over tens of thousands of years. I think if you took a, a very, a human from like 40,000 years ago and uh, as a baby and they grew up in our today's world, they would understand everything we understand. I think that... Um, it's just a difference in culture. Do you I think mean, our think, brain grows as we develop, uh, our IQ goes up, if we are involved in, for example, in your case, PhD, you went to school, you're totally active, your brain. Do brains size equate also with the amount of intellect of the person. And the reason why I'm saying this is we have never lived in a time when we we have all this information at our disposal. 20 years ago, I had to go to the library and read books in order for me to get something. Now you press a button and you have the information right here. I don't even know most people's telephone number because it's right on my telephone. Do you think that's going to have a 
size difference in our brains in the future? I don't know. Um, when I was a kid, we were real poor and we were on a farm and we didn't have electricity and plumbing and all that. And my parents were farming with horses, but, um, then I worked my way through school and I didn't have too much trouble. I had social things were against females were a lot worse than the intellectual things. I don't know. Um, I think it's just culture. Do you think the next step in humanity's evolution would be meeting otherworldly life forms? I think that's a possibility. Uh, And we, we seem to see it as something like a UFO landing on the White House or something like that. Well, maybe they're here all the time and maybe we just aren't advanced enough to understand that and to understand communications and that sort of thing. Maybe we just need to like study quantum theory and things like that and um, understand that there's a lot in our environment that we probably just aren't processing and getting. So um, I don't know. I think that we've, if we had the ability to visit a otherworldly place with different life forms, I think we would have to probably send probes first just to take a look at what it is, send some intelligence out there to get in, gather information for us. Do you think that that is what they have been doing for many, many years? They have people here and what some people who are abducted say that some of their fertilized eggs are removed from them is so that they can have their own here as their quote-unquote ambassadors so they could relay information back and forth so that the shock won't be as hard in the future if they have to say, hey, we have been here for a very long time. Well, I imagine that probably like the earth has been here for maybe close to 4 billion years. And anybody with advanced astronomy from a long time ago and far away would know that we might, Earth might have this type of life. And so I would say that probably for a long way around, around you know, our universe, like for four billion light years maybe, that, pe- that advanced life forms that have been aware of Earth and known what type of life was here and that sort of thing. So I think there's a good possibility that the universe beings in the universe are aware of us. If they are aware of us, why have they not made contact, in your opinion? Oh, the prime directive. I don't know. I imagine that maybe we have to evolve and increase our intelligence to the point where we understand more about them. They may already be here and just be invisible to us because we're just not that intelligent. (laughs) But let's say you're the leader of a country, whether it's government or religious. If we're able to make contact with another civilization that has been around for millions of years and they have conquered disease and they have basically a utopia, why would we listen to our leaders, religious or government? Isn't that one reason why neither wants us to Look outside our quote unquote globe. Uh huh. Certainly. <laughs> Expound a little bit on that answer. Uh, well, we seem to think that if that um, our leaders are superior to us, which is questionable, and we we seem to um, have this authority structure where if somebody from flies across the universe and lands here that they should land and say, take me to your leader. Right. Well, that doesn't seem to be happening. It seems like if there is communication between, um, other types of beings, it may, it may be anybody like a, um, janitor or something, not necessarily the president, but, um, who says the president's all that superior? I mean, maybe, (laughs) 
they have different reasons for contacting different people, and maybe they just don't accept our authority structure at all. That's exactly right. If we go to another planet, I bet you, for you and I, if we said, take us to your leader, and they say, which tribe or which country, it yeah. would not make sense to us. We would expect one leader for the entire planet that we're visiting, right? So uh -huh. here, it's so convoluted. For example, this is not to digress from the conversation, but for example, take, take North Korea as an example. I have a Korean friend who told me that years ago, they started allowing people to watch movies from the West. And when people watched Titanic, the movie, they could not understand it because any movie that they have ever watched, all the love and all the devotion goes to their leader, in this case, Kim Jong-un. So they could not understand it. Even the people who get married, they put the leader first and then the husband or the wife or what have you. So imagine if you're an extraterrestrial life form and you arrive in, in North Korea and then they tell you, well, well, things are different in the United States and in Europe and in Africa. So I wonder if it's a prime, direct, prime directive or the fact that we cannot get our act together. And by the way, I'm not advocating a new world order or a one world government here. Yeah, well, I think we're spending all our time fighting and having wars. When right. We could do a lot. I mean, if we were working on more advanced physics and more advanced ideas and more advanced science, we might already be communicating across the universe instead of making weapons and killing each other. And that's what I'm saying. If we were able to make contact, it would be a threat to the establishment because who would we offer our devotion to? I would like to know, oh, you have a utopian civilization? Tell me all about it. And if it's true, if it's not that they're just coming here with a red herring, you know, to take us as cattle or as food, but if it's truly they have conquered disease and, 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 and they have a, an economic system that works for everybody and all that, I would be very interested in knowing that. Yeah. And it, in our form of life, we're carbon units. We require food and sunshine and water and all that. But you don't necessarily know that all forms of life are like that. Some of them may be something that doesn't have the energy requirements of us, too. And this is, again, I'm digressing, but I'm very curious to as to what your opinion is. You've heard about giants that walk the earth. There are plenty of skeletons that, that show giants that are beyond what we can comprehend. Uh, or, say, take the Paracas skulls, the elongated skulls in Peru, or the homofluorescensis in, in Indonesia, the little people. What do you think happened with all these subspecies of humans? Well, I sort of think, um, like they say, we're, like they always say, we're homo sapiens and Neanderthals or Neanderthals and things like that. Well, we're part Neanderthal. And there's been a, and we're part, um, I can't, the Denusium or something. Oh, the Denisovans. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> the, the, it's Denisovan or Denis, Denisovan. I've heard both. Denisovian. Well, we're part um, of a number of other forms to start with. We're not, um, we're hybrids. And, You know, they say, well, these are different species. We don't know if they're different species or not because we might very well be able to breed with Neanderthals because we're not that much different and we're part Neanderthal. And so um, I think that um, we're sort of a – well, we have a, a variety of ancestors to start with. People used to think, well, we're superior to everything – you know, look down on the Neanderthals, and now they know we're have Neanderthal ancestors, and we don't know whether we would be able to breed with a Neanderthal if one were alive right now, because it wasn't that long ago, maybe 20,000 years ago, when we were breeding. So um, I think the boundaries that they set up historically aren't quite true as they go into genetics more. And by the way, the pronunciation is Denisovan, and Denis the definition for those who wonder what we're talking about, 
It's an ex- extinct species of human of robust build distributed from Siberia to Southeast Asia in the upper Paleolithic. But we have to take a one and only break. When we come back, I want you to discuss, of course, without breaching any agreement that you have with the government, but I'd like to know of your experience at Rye Patterson, our Patel, and anywhere else, because not that many people that I talk to who have worked at places where the formal investigation into this subject is happening. I'd like you to tell me more about that. And I have a lot of notes here of things that you have discussed. I want you to tell me what you know about Paul Benowitz and a story of some letters that I have from him, written letters and his business card. But all of this when we come back. How can people buy Sacred Corridors? Uh, they can say Sacred Corridors. Irina Scott on the internet and they should be able to pull up Amazon.com and get it. I also have on my um, internet site irenascott.com I have all my books on it and all they have to do is click on the book and it goes right to Amazon.com and they can order it immediately if they just type in Irena Scott Wonderful Folks, I'm here with Dr. Irena Scott discussing her newest book, Sacred Corridors When we come back, a lot more This is Mel Fabregas and you are listening to Veritas See you in the member section Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you. <laughs> 